Good evening, honourable members, and thank you very much for joining us. Before we proceed with tonight's event, members are reminded to abide by the Society's rules and forms of the House, including ensuring our guests receive a courteous and respectful hearing. Members are also reminded that no filming, photography or recording is permitted. Today we are joined by diplomatic representatives of the United Arab Emirates, the State of Israel and the Kingdom of Bahrain for a panel discussion on the Abraham Accords. The Abraham Accords are a series of joint normalisation agreements signed between Israel and several Arab states, first signed by Bahrain and the UAE in 2020. Since then, Morocco and Sudan have also normalised relations with Israel. Until 2020, no Arab state had normalised relations with Israel since Jordan in 1996, a fact that demonstrates the significance of the Accords. They have not, however, been free from controversy. The Arab states involved have been accused of abandoning the people of Palestine, whilst the Trump's administration's grand promises for the expansion of the Accords have not materialised. In the first event of its kind across the world, we are joined by His Excellency Mansour Abulul, Emirati Ambassador to the United Kingdom, Her Excellency Tzipi Hotaveli, Israeli Ambassador to the UK, and Mr. Hussein Mohammed Alam, Deputy Head of the Bahraini Mission to the United Kingdom, to discuss the past, present and future of the Abraham Accords and what they mean for the Middle East. Each of the ambassadors will give brief opening remarks on the Accords before taking questions from me and then from the audience. Please join me in welcoming the Excellencies. Thank you very much. Uh, His Excellency uh, Mansour uh, Abulul will uh, give opening remarks first. Thank you very much, Charlie. Am I switched on? I think so. Yeah. yeah. Uh, great privilege, really, to be addressing such a distinguished audience. And I do hope we have a meaningful discussion for you today that, with something you can take away with. I was thinking a lot before um, this event uh, in terms of what I would say, what I would speak about and a phrase came to mind in fact and it's um, to those learned uh, uh, linguists within the audience they would understand what it means but it's Ahl al-Kitab which means the people of the book uh, and um, draws importance on the historical connections between Muslims, Jews and Christians uh, and too sadly when we look at the region today or over the last decades it's been sort of mired by a lot of trouble and conflict, you know, and I think with the, the Accords two years ago, that certainly provided, um, from the Emirates' perspective, a new profound meaning to how we establish, how the Arab world can establish relations with Israel. Um, so, uh, from that perspective, um, the fundamental premise the Accords for me really stands upon is about building dialogue and cooperation and communication. Um, you know, so that's, that's something that I think, um, from our perspective, has really transformed things. But it's also been based upon uh, a lot of understanding and acceptance. Uh, and um, if I may say so, I'm sort of the living proof of that. Um, it might not be to do with the Abram Accords, uh, but um, my mother, originally from Cambridge, and I'll be careful not to mention that too many times, but uh, um, she married an Emirati uh, man. Um, they met in the 60s uh, in Cambridge. That's the last time I mentioned that. Um, but, you know, that cultural sort of bridge 
was, was huge at, it, at its time. My mother went and traveled. She's now Emirati. Um, but in 1968, she arrived uh, in the Emirates. And, and so, you know, for me, that's kind of, I've always seen those two, with the role that I do, it's brought sort of two, and I promise I won't go on for too long, but it's brought two halves of my, my life together. But I think that, that sort of acceptance and dialogue is exceptionally important in the world that we live in. Um, and having spent um, uh, most of my sort of upbringing in the Emirates, I then went on and studied uh, in boarding school in Scotland of all places. And I went to a school um, that was um, founded by a distinguished um, German Jewish educationalist, Kurt Hahn, you may know. Um, and he certainly instilled in the school and in me a sense of acceptance and understanding, um, uh, you know, and I think, but he also instilled this character, the education side, and I think we need to view the accords in that regard. We need to be determined to overcome the challenges and stay the course. Uh, so that's really my opening remarks, Charlie, you know, and it's a great privilege. I feel so humbled, actually, someone of my, um, my standing to be addressing such a distinguished audience. So thank you very much indeed. Your Excellency. Uh. Thank you for having us. Um, I'm really, really excited from sharing the stage with my friends, with Mansour and Hussein, here in Oxford Union that celebrates 200 years anniversary. So it's really wonderful. Thank you so much for having us celebrating two years of the Abraham Accords and 200 years for the Oxford Union. 15th of December, 15th of September 2020 was a very important date in the Middle East history. This was the date where the Abraham Accords was signed in Washington in the White House. And I remember myself as a child dreaming about the option of peace with the Arab world. But for many years, people doubted that as an option. They said it's impossible, you need to solve the Palestinian issue first, and you cannot move forward without solving your closest neighbor's problem. And Israel's approach was always to sign peace with all our neighbors. So this is why Menachem Begin signed a peace agreement with Egypt, our biggest neighbor, and then Itzhak Rabin was signing an agreement with Jordan in the 90s, and then Prime Minister Netanyahu decided to change the paradigm. He said, if it's possible to have peace with Jordan and Egypt, then it's possible to have peace with the whole Arab world. And he moved forward after many years of building a very delicate and gentle infrastructure. And this peace became a reality. And this reality for me is the fact that it's not just a political agreement. It's not just agreement between leaders, but it became people-to-people -people agreement. And I always like to say that my first meetings when I came to the UK was not with the Queen, with not, were not with other ambassadors than those colleagues here, with Sheikh Fouaz, and my, my colleagues and I felt the warmth that the Abraham Accords brought to the Middle East. And we will speak a lot about the great collaboration we have, but for me, the fact it's a people-to-people peace -people is the most wonderful thing that could happen in my lifetime and in my children's lifetime. Mr. Alam?
I'll be, if you may, I'll be reading out my, my remarks. Excellencies, President McIntosh, union members, on behalf of His Excellency Ambassador Sheikh Fawaz Al-Khalifa, I am delighted to be in such a distinguished company here in this historic setting of the Oxford Union. As we discuss the Abraham Accords and the prospects for peace, prosperity, and cooperation across the Middle East and North Africa. I want to start by thanking the Union President, Charlie McIntosh, Development Chair, Michael Lee, and all those who have helped arrange tonight's event. And by warmly congratulating the Oxford Union and all its members in this 200th anniversary year. Tonight, we are considering both the background to the Abraham Accords and what they might mean for the future of our region and its peoples. By way of brief introduction, I want to outline the history and values which informed Kingdom of Bahrain's decision to sign the Accords and which underpin our national, regional, and international policies more, more generally. For centuries and more, Bahrain has held a unique position as a regional trading hub and a meeting point between nationalities, faiths, and cultures. Today, we have one of the most cosmopolitan and religiously diverse societies in the region, with Muslims, Christians, Jews, Hindus, and others living, working, and worshiping freely alongside their fellow citizens and residents. And in recent years, His Majesty King Hamad bin Isa al-Khalifa has further built on this heritage through initiatives such as the King Hamad Center for Peaceful Coexistence and the Kingdom of Bahrain Declaration, reaffirming our deep-rooted Bahraini values of coexistence, dialogue, and mutual respect. Because there can, no, there can be no doubt that the Middle East has failed to approach its potential or that of its peoples through decades of hostility and confrontation it has failed to grow those networks of trade, cooperation, interaction, and interdependence which underpin not just prosperity, but also lasting security and stability. Without wanting to sound utopian, our hope is that the Abraham Accords can change this dynamics across the Middle East and provide new perspectives and avenues towards resolving the challenges facing the region and its people. So looking to the future, our hope is the Abraham Accords can be the first step in achieving the region's potential by building economic and trade ties, by developing networks of cooperation and trust, by bringing people together across our societies and by enabling individuals and communities to fulfill their aspirations in an atmosphere of coexistence, respect, and trust. This is our optimistic take on the Accords and their future, and one which we genuinely hope we can come close to achieving. I therefore look forward to an interesting and informative discussion with the distinguished ambassadors and the members of the unions, which I hope will deepen our understanding of the Abraham Accords and the future, and the future potential 
for the Middle East. Thank you so much. So prior to the signing of the Abraham Accords, the existence of diplomatic relations between the U Israel and the UAE, and to a lesser extent Bahrain, had been an open secret for years, if not decades. So if diplomatic channels were already established between uh, the states, what change did the Abraham Accords actually offer? We'll go to Your Excellency first. So uh, um, uh, do you mean for the region, or do you mean along a bilateral level? Or both. Both, both. both. So on a bilateral level, I mean, it's, it, the, the benefits have been huge. I mean, just when you dial in these two very dynamic countries, very dynamic economies, you've seen immediate benefits when it's come to trade, investment, um, uh, cooperation around climate. Uh, the people connectivity, as Zippy said, is huge. We have over 500,000 Israelis that visit us. Um, you know, we've, uh, when you talk people and culture, we just inaugurated the Abrahamic family house. So they've been big benefits from that side and when you're establishing a, a bilateral relationship from the ground up it requires a lot of work uh, where we where we've seen sort of immediate benefits on sort of a more broader regional basis is um, we feel we can actually serve the Palestinian cause better by having direct relations with Israel and if you look back in history the countries that have sort of been most influential in terms of peace talks are those that have had those direct links with Israel. Um, so uh, from that perspective, we've seen, I mean, ver a very live example was the presidential statement that, the, that was issued by the UN Security Council uh, that was um, led by the UAE in many ways, having, having links with the Palestinians there, but also having discussions with the Israelis and the Americans, you know, and, and that's, you know, pre prior to the accords, that wouldn't have been possible. So, I mean, from that perspective, those are the type of examples. Uh, but, you know, I think um, the, the Accords provides a, a communication framework that's vital, that's so important. And, and that's really, you know, it's along those lines. But as I say, you've got to build dialogue. You've got to build that trust and confidence for things to work. And we're just starting with the Accords. You know, I think it's, you can't see the Abraham Accords in isolation. You've got to see it in the many steps that have been um, that have been taken uh, and you know we have the things are tense at the moment but we potentially averted a crisis but things are still simmering you know and it will require further efforts by the international communities but you've seen clear evidence of UA demonstrating UA diplomacy demonstrating that we can arrive at a solution to dial things down so from that perspective yeah well we'll talk further yeah, about yeah. the consequences of Palestine in a second um, but do you deny that there were uh, diplomatic links between the UAE and Israel prior to the signing of the Abraham Accords, even if they weren't formalised or um, um, in embassies? I, you know, I'm really here to talk about the current and the future. You know, I, I think um, you know, countries will have... <laughs> the current and future. But you know, countries will have um, uh, channels of communication for intelligence purposes. You know, I can't really comment on those. It's slightly outside of my lane, but uh, you know, I'm here to talk about the current and the future. <laughs> uh, do you care to comment on that, Your Excellency, uh, on perhaps there being prior channels of communication between these two states and Israel before the Abraham Accords? Well, I think I said that in my remarks, uh, that it was built step by step for many years, but I think there is nothing to compare formal diplomatic relations than the things we had before. So no doubt that this is a game changer in the region. And 
speaking about that, I will really follow up on what uh, my dear friend Mansour said. So he was speaking about building frameworks. So I think one of the most successful frameworks that was built was the Negev Summit that I think this year will be in Morocco. And uh, Morocco is part of the Abraham Accords. And the fact that it gave inspiration to more countries to join and to share with us the challenges in the region and to address it with solutions being discussed together. This is incredible. The fact we have working teams on all the challenges in the region, and I'm talking before security. Security is definitely one of them, but daily life things like health, like climate, um, things in regards to our future, as you know, we all want to have renewable energy, we all would like to see uh, water solutions in the future, we, all countries you know, suffer from uh, desert areas, so all together, uh, food security, all those issues that are top priority for each of our countries, we share technological knowledge, uh, we share um, our abilities with the know-how, I think it's incredible. And this is why I think nothing to compare before and after. This is really a moment that changed our lives. And just to give you a small example from our lives as Israelis, um, just today, the foreign minister was announcing about flights flying over the space area of Oman. And that's going to make flights to the Far East shorter in a few hours. Think about the time being saved and also about the accessibility for half of the world for us. After for many years, it's been, you know, uh, going through bypasses and not direct. This is incredible. The same with Saudi. So um, we had the ability to fly to India through um, Saudi Air Pass. This is things that are changing the daily life of everyone. So it's incredible. Uh, Mr. Alam, when the accords were first signed, it was remarked by some commentators that Bahrain very much seemed the third of three parties within the Abraham Accords. Do you think this is a fair representation? Well, uh, not, on, not truly. This is, this is some, some of the, let's say, tabloid, what or the news was, was some of the journalists, journalists were using. The Abraham Accords was a decision by all four countries, hand in hand, United States, Bahrain, UAE, Israel, all together. They had this idea of paving the way and forming a right path in order to have security, stability, and prosperity in the region, and this is what they did. Um, we can see the outcome of that on a daily basis. We see, as His Excellency mentioned, the exchanges, the cooperation, the trade indicators, the visits. In the past two, two years and a half, they have gone from none to, I don't know, countless. Countless. <laughs> countless. So, um, in, 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 true, in true meaning, the Abraham Accords have been a genuine path towards development, towards peace, security, and looking much further in a better future for all countries and all people of the, of the region. So. Um, moving on then to the consequences for Palestine. Uh, in almost all of the peace talks of the last seven decades, the Arab world has held diplomatic relations with Arab states as being uh, a bargaining tool uh, used to get concessions for the Palestinian people. Um, 
do the Abraham Accords represent the abandonment of the Palestinian people and the cause of Palestine by the UAE, Bahrain, Morocco, and Sudan? Um, go to your excellency first. Most definitely not. Uh, um, we stand with the Palestinian people, and as I said, very central to the Accords was how we could serve the Palestinian people by having uh, direct relations with, um, with Israel. Um, so certainly not, and we continue um, to provi provide aid. As I said, the presidential statement was a, a guarantee of providing financial aid, so we stand with them. I mean, our ultimate aim is, is to deliver a just cause for these people and end any conflict and violence, you know. So um, we, we stand with the, all parties in finding um, a solution, but in the end, this has to come from direct direct negotiations, direct uh, dialogue between those two parties. And we certainly see the Accords and our role as an influencer, as a potential uh, safety valve, you know, for when things simmer and when tensions rise, but also moving it to creating the space where they can come in and dialogue. In 2020, when the Accords were signed, uh, the UAE stated that, that they were in fact doing so to help the cause of the Palestinian people because in agreement of, of the UAE signing the accords, Israel had agreed to suspend their uh, illegal annexation of the West Bank. Um, would the UAE pull out of the Abraham Accords if this process were to be resumed? No, the, 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 the accords, I mean, the whole region has been rewired. This, there's no going back, you know, but I think, again, I reference um, the live example that we had earlier in the week where we worked with the Americans, we worked with the council members, the Security Council, to issue a presidential statement, and our Israeli friends have frozen, you know, any activity. So there is, you know, things are not easy. I'm not sort of suggesting that we can solve this overnight, um, but at least there's attempts uh, by the UAE and many other countries to actually move this in, in the right direction. Um, even if they have frozen this settlement building annexation, it is not on foreseeable that the process would resume. With diplomatic relations normalized now, would the UAE respond by uh, going back on the Abraham Accords and stopping diplomatic, ceasing diplomatic relations again? I think that would be hugely counterproductive, you know, um, to a step to do, and no, the UAE wouldn't do that. You know, we're, we're committed to these accords. These are accords, as, as my colleague Hussein said, about, and, my, and Zippy said, these are um, accords for building peace and prosperity, ultimately, uh, you know, and we see them as a framework of communication, so certainly not. Um, uh, Mr. Alam, uh, what's Bahrain's view on this? The, pro the accords were much less popular in, the, in Bahrain than they were in the UAE amongst the people who no, are protesting against them. I totally agree with His Excellency's remarks on, on that the Arab countries have always stood beside Palestine, their position is clear, and it will be as it is, nothing will change. What our intake is on that is that with the Abraham Accords, we found it more suitable and more achieving to have other doors of negotiation, other doors of discussion, opening other pathways of sitting between two sides and understanding where the issues are and trying to resolve them all together. So uh, at the end of the day, it's becoming a good tool in order to get two sides together that are in, in, in two sides that haven't been kind of able to reach to a certain solution while 
the Abraham Accords countries could help in, in, in that process. Um, you said that Bahrain will always stand with the Palestinian people. But if the Palestinian people and the Palestinian government and the Foreign Secretary of the Arab League have all claimed this is not in the interest of the Palestinian people, how can you reconcile those two courses of action? At the end of the day, this is, to be honest, this is politics. Everybody is going to be saying whatever he deems necessary for his own cause. Um, we stand on our position, again, and I reiterate, this is the position of all Arab countries, and we are an Arab country, and we will stand as it is on our position. So nothing would change that. Uh, your Excellency, you said in your opening remarks, you quoted uh, President Netanyahu saying that uh, peace has to start at home and with Israel's neighbors. Um, is Israel's neighbor not first and foremost Palestine? And um, where does Palestine fit into President Netanyahu's plan, vision for the Abraham Accords? So just to be accurate about what Netanyahu's vision was, um, Netanyahu said that everyone is trapped in a paradigm where they're investing just in the Palestinian question and they don't see the big regional issues. And he said, if we'll do it the other way around, we'll do from the outside, we'll go and start with the Arab countries um, that we have so much um, to share and so many challenges we have in common, then the Palestinians will follow. So I think in Netanyahu's vision, he always wanted to reach peace, but he knew that the way to peace will, might gonna be in a creative way. So his creative way to say, look how much the region is earning from this amazing cooperation between our Arab friends and, and all the Arab countries in the region. I know he keeps on saying that he wants to extend the Abraham Accords, he wants to deepen the, um, all, in all levels, uh, both trade, um, there is a wonderful trade agreement being signed with the UAE, one of the fastest, I'm quite jealous, with my colleague uh, sitting in Abu Dhabi, and um, here with Bahrain, I know we're working on a new trade deal, so trade and um, all the working plans we have um, moving forward, so I think it's an inspiration, and this is something that we're calling all our neighbors to come and join the prosperity that peace brings. You nodded along when Mr. Alam said that all of these things are, are political and statements made are political. Uh, is, it, is there not also some truth in the fact, as been pointed out by many pundits, that the reason that Israel and particularly Mr. Netanyahu and his party are so keen to extend and deepen the Abraham Accords is to further isolate Palestine and make full occupation of the West Bank easier? Yeah. So the truth is, it's the other way around, because um, actually I think Netanyahu was brave to say we are not going to stop seeking for peace agreements while the Palestinians at the moment are divided in their leadership. You know, half of the Palestinians are led by Hamas, terror organization, denies the right of Israel to exist. So he said, let's move forward. How are we going to move forward? So let's try to achieve more in the region. Now, speaking about the Palestinians' refusal, um, I just want to remind you, a few months ago, there was one of the most progressive liberal governments we ever had in Israel, including uh, members from the Arab parties, and Netanyahu uh, was in the opposition. So the refusal of the Palestinians had nothing to do to Netanyahu as a person. It was their approach towards Israel. So even when the country was led by Yair Lapid, who's a left-wing leader, um, they refused to come and sit and negotiate. And just like my friend here, His Excellency said, 
obviously you cannot solve problems with your neighbors without having direct negotiation. You cannot go to the UN to solve your problems. You cannot, you know, just ignore the problems. You need to sit and talk and you need to come for direct talks like we always used to have. And this is the only thing can achieve peace. And mentioning another thing, many people mention different barriers for peace. And I'm afraid we need to mention the fact that Israel is under terrorism many times from Palestinian terrorism. And just in the last month, we lost children, we lost innocent people being attacked directly by Palestinian terrorists. One of the most horrific attacks I remember as, as, as a young person. This is freedom of speech, we're for that. Uh, <laughs> and Oxford Union, Oxford Union is a good model for freedom of speech, uh, but I think the people are saying from the river to the sea, Palestine is free, basically are saying Israel shouldn't exist. And my colleagues and I, not just we want Israel to exist, we want all our countries to prosper together by cooperating. And um, people that are against that idea are against peace. So um, I think we should remember terrorism is against peace and innocent people being killed is against peace. And as a mother for three young daughters, I want to see a future where a Palestinian child wants and is dreaming about a peace with Israel and not a peace without Israel. Um. Returning to uh, uh, the divides this has caused within the Arab world, states like Kuwait and Lebanon who have sort of uh, expressly ruled out, well, the Abraham Accords and ex uh, expressed criticism of them. Does this mark the end of pan-Arab unity and pan-Arab cooperation? I think we're looking at the dawn of a new uh, region, you know, and... and uh, um, uh, um, the Arab world will still be, play very strong in, within that, but we're looking at a new dawn, and you know, I, um, uh, I, I think it's it's one that um, uh, has. If we look decades back, the UK and US have kind of led uh, those relations um, to Israel, you know, and you're seeing organically from the region itself um, those players now normalising with Israel. And that's surely a good thing, you know, if, if it's surely stronger for the region. So I think on your question about other countries and, um, you know, that, that aspect, I think we have to work really hard to honour the commitments of the Accords and see them through and deliver on the achievements. There's an awful lot of work to do there. So we're very la laser focused on that. Uh, and I think that will inspire, that should inspire other countries at the right time. It's their own sovereign decision when they do that. But at the right time, but we're busy working hard on, on delivering the commitments of the Accords and there's a lot of work to do there. I'm conscious that I want to allow as much time as possible for audience questions, so I'll ask uh, one more question uh, each to Mr. Alam and uh, uh, Her Excellency. Um, Mr. Alam, uh, Morocco and Israel have since the, their normalization of, um, negotiation, of, of, of diplomatic relations have since signed a defence and security agreement, um, which many have 
claimed makes Morocco complicit in some of the actions of uh, the Israeli Defense Force, for example, the uh, attack in the West Bank yesterday, which killed both uh, uh, terrorist fighters and uh, innocent civilians. Um, would Bahrain consider a security agreement with Israel, particularly given that it's often speculated that Bahrain's primary motivation for joining the Abraham Accords was fear of Iran's influence in the Persian Gulf? To be honest, I wouldn't take it from that perspective, and I wouldn't only focus on the defense side of it or the security side of it. If I want to mention what the Abraham Accords have achieved so far for Bahrain, I'd say we've already signed 45 MOUs and agreements, 13 which are ongoing or in process. Seven of those, or eight, are purely dealing with trade and investment. So looking at the bright side of it, whether it's investment, whether it's health, whether it's food security, water security, climate, we have to look into it from a very general perspective and see the outcome and the goals we want to achieve in that regard. But it's not purely defense, not purely security, as I mentioned. It's a, let's say, it's a comprehensive package that we are trying to achieve between ourselves and our friends in Israel and our friends in, in the UAE and the Abraham Accords signatories. So, so, the, so Bahrain does acknowledge that it has security collaborations with Israel that give it connections with the IDF and their actions. Again, sorry? Um, so Bahrain does acknowledge that it has security uh, agreements with Israel that make it uh, engaged with the IDF and their actions. I did not mention that. I said uh, it's a general perspective of all MOUs, agreements, covering different aspects. Now, I'm not sure, to be honest, with the, the point you raised, but in general, it's various fields of cooperation, and we're working towards achieving much more for the security and stability of the whole region, not only Bahrain. But you did say to look at the brighter side of the agreements that have been reached between Bahrain and Israel, which implies perhaps a less bright or darker side to them. I'm always optimistic. I always look into the brighter side of it. So um, everybody and anywhere at any time would always look forward for a better future, not looking to anything in the past. Um, Your Excellency, then, before we open up to audience questions, when the Accords were announced, uh, President Trump said that five more Arab states were in negotiations to sign the Accords, uh, and since then Morocco and Sudan have. Who were the other three, and why have uh, conversations about the, the Accords uh, gone much more quieter under the Biden administration, with the administration refusing to even call it the Abraham Accords? Is it just an American political football? should ask this question, Trump and Biden. Uh, both <laughs> if America they'll come, present. I'll happily ask uh, them the question. Yeah. Uh, well, the, the union <laughs> definitely hosted uh, um, very important uh, American politicians and others. I think from our point of view, and I'm sure my colleagues will agree, we want to extend the accords. We would like as many countries to join, and we really want to work hard in order to make it happen. Um, Obviously, the world has changed. Russia, Ukraine is a serious thing. Uh, we are very much concerned about Iran and the Russian-Iranian cooperation on Ukraine. So definitely 
different times bring different agendas, but our agenda in the region is to extend the peace circle. And when I'm saying our, I mean, of course, the Israeli government led by Netanyahu, so I know that we are keen to move forward. And who were the other three states that Trump yeah, I, I really don't know who Trump had in mind. <laughs> I know that Netanyahu mentioned many times he wants Saudi to join. Uh, now we had this agreement with Oman that is a good sign about, uh, you know, warming up with Oman. Um, we just had Sudan a few weeks ago. Um, you know, so we keep on working on extending the peace circle. With, with that, we'll open up to questions from the audience. If you'd like to ask a question, please raise your hand or, or membership card uh, and you'll be called upon. We'll first go to the member over there in the corner. Uh, you, yeah, with the blue shirt on and the... Thanks a lot. Uh, thanks so much for uh, joining this event and for agreeing to take questions. Uh, I just have a, a quick question, but it applies to uh, all three of you distinguished guests. Oh, yeah, sorry. I, sh I should have caveated this. All questions must be addressed to all three panelists. Thank you. Um, so don't you think it's a shame that this event couldn't have taken place without all of the security that we're seeing around this room? Uh, and uh, do you all see a possibility for a, a possible future where this level of security isn't necessary for... Uh, an event such as this to take place uh, between distinguished guests from your uh, respective countries. Thank you. Pardon? Uh, the question was, um, uh, do you all think it's regrettable that this event has to take place with so much security, and do you think there is a possibility of a world in which an event like this can happen without such security? Is that a, a fair paraphrasing? Yeah. Um, do you want to go first? Uh, yeah. Uh, do you want to go first, Mr. Alam? Well, I think when people do understand what we are trying to achieve here, then it would be possible. Um, any comments from your excellencies? Not really. I mean, I think these are, these are detailed. And... Uh, forgive me. Uh, not really. I think these are detailed, and we, we all wish that we could live in sort of a safer world. Um, but, you know, there's, the precautions are there for a reason. So, but I agree with you. It would be great if we could do this in years to come with, with no security. Uh, yes. I love my team that is watching me, but I definitely would love to have my life without security. So, <laughs> all I want to join to the prayers that we're not going to need that. Uh, next question, please. Uh, we'll go to the member here in the blue and white jumper. Um, thank you so much. Thank you for being here. Um, I think I've been following all of your work, um, Madam Otovli, especially yours. So I just wanted to ask you, like, in terms of like mental health as a student, there's so much happening in the world. It's hard to, you know, it just becomes hard and it wears you down. But especially following your work, um, you killed 10 people in Nablus yesterday. You killed 10 in Janine last month. You bombed Syria when I was going through an earthquake. So how do you sleep with yourself at night, just in terms of like students' mental health? Because we're unable to do that. So I just want to ask, like, how do you do it? Like, uh, is it supposed to you have to have a stone heart or what? Like, if you could just guide us through it, I would absolutely love it. Um, been following your work. I'm such a fan. I wish I had a nervous system like you, but I, I don't. Thank you so much. Thank you. So the question is about um, the last uh, operation in Nablus and the former one in Jenin. Unfortunately, Israel suffered from many terror attacks. Most of them you heard of. Um, there was a Friday night synagogue service on the International Memorial Day of the Holocaust. 
and a Palestinian terrorist walked with a gun and was firing and shooting innocent people. 11 people got killed from those Palestinian attacks just in the last few weeks. And whenever our intelligence is getting a very specific alert, this is exact... It's a shame you don't want to listen because I'm actually answering... But we, we would like to answer. This is a dialogue. Um, I think if you really want to listen, this is where we're coming here to the university to have an engagement. And the reason we're using our defense forces is to defend our people. The UK would have done the same. The UK would have done the same and any other country in the world, including you know, all our friends in the world, the Western countries, want to defend their people. We don't want kids to be killed in the streets of Jerusalem, just like we had those, you know, those innocent faces of Yaakov and Asher Peli, beautiful young kids that were brutally murdered. I cannot forget the image of their faces. So I don't want any child to be killed, not a Palestinian child, not a Jewish child. But the truth is we never target civilians. And unfortunately, those terrorists were targeting those young Israeli kids. Given that questions should be addressed to all panelists, um, what do our, do our other two panelists agree with the member that um, the attack on the West Bank uh, constitutes a terrorist attack? I think we're very clear with our statement the UAE made, and we called for, we condemned the attack on Nablus, um, but we are calling for restraint. And I go back to the presidential statement. We need to find solutions to this. Uh, we need to find uh, safety valves to release the pressure. Um, you know, and we are very concerned when these, when these things happen and violence is not a solution to anything. To be honest, I can't add on His Excellency. Bahrain's position was the same position, so I can't add anything more. So regrettable and condemned, but you wouldn't go as far as to say they're terrorist attacks. That, that fair, fair evaluation? We made our statement. We, we have an official statement. Okay. okay. Um, now look for another question from the audience. Look to the member uh, here with the uh, coat, second row at the front. Yeah, you. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to ask to all three panelists, of course, is the Arab Peace Initiative now abandoned since a shortcut like the Abraham Accords provided the possibility of a shortcut to diplomatic relations with Israel without first solving the Palestine issue? And do you think the Abraham Accords is a good enough argument or selling point to non-Arab Muslim countries such as Indonesia to normalize relations with Israel? So those outside the region specifically. Thank you. Could you repeat the question? Sorry. Um, I said, is the Arab Peace Initiative now abandoned since a shortcut like the Abraham Accords provided the possibility of a shortcut to diplomatic relations with Israel without first solving the Palestine issue? And do you think the Abraham Accords is a good enough argument or selling point to non-Arab Muslim countries in the region, sorry, outside the region, to normalize relations with Israel? Because most non-Arab Muslim countries would insist we solve the Palestine issue first before we move on to diplomatic relations. So let's tackle both those questions, one then the other. So Your Excellency, do you want to tackle the question about the Arab Peace Initiative? Certainly. I mean, we, see, we support the Arab Peace Initiative. And what I'd remind you really is that 
please don't look at these things in isolation. You've got to see them as steps, important steps, and the Arab Peace Initiative is an important one, as is the Abraham Accords. You know, they're all seeking uh, to deliver that solution and just solution for the Palestinian cause. Mr. Alam, obviously you cannot speak for the governments of other nations, but do you think that the Abraham Accords opens the way for non-Arab Muslim states such as Indonesia or sub-Saharan African countries to um, normalize relations with Israel? Definitely, this is what we have been saying from the beginning, that having a successful Abraham Accords, having the signatories over there, sh shows other countries that there is a way, there is a path, and it can be done. So um, definitely, I th we see, hopefully we will be seeing more countries to join. As, as Her Excellency mentioned, Sudan just joined like two weeks ago, and hopefully some others are on the way. 100% agree with my colleagues. Um, I suppose that a general question from me uh, to um, Mr. Lam and, and Your Excellency is, you know, if the aim of this is for all Arab states across the world to normalize relations with Israel, or all Muslim states across the world to normalize relations with Israel, do you see why the people of Palestine feel let down and abandoned by it? I was reticent to use this phrase, but sometimes you fear what you don't understand, and um, please don't go and Google, because I think it's from a Batman movie, but um, I, don't, I don't think that's the right phrase, but um, we feel, again, uh, that we will never abandon the Palestinian cause. We have been, since the founding father of the United Arab Emirates, Sheikh Zayed, we've been long-standing supporters of the Palestinian cause and will remain to do, and this is an important step in finding that peaceful and just solution. So um, we can understand, um, you know, this is a very emotive uh, issue, a very delicate issue, and we understand that, uh, but we want to create that space. I'm sorry to, for sounding like a, but it's not sort of a, a passive mantra. It really is, we've got to be better at dialogue and diplomacy. I totally agree, and I, as I mentioned earlier, is that at the end of the day, what we're trying to do here is cooperation, not confrontation. It's having a, we want to build on that, we want to demonstrate that working together brings benefit for all sides and pro prove that, that these benefits are constructive for the coexistence of both states. We do stand, as I mentioned earlier, on the position of Bahrain and when it comes to the Palestinian issue, like any other country, but we're hoping that at the end of this, we would achieve our goal, which is a comprehensive solution for the conflict going on. Next question from the audience. Uh, we'll go to the member second in, uh, four back, with a yellow card. Yeah, yeah, you. You. That microphone. Uh, hi, uh, my question is mainly to um, Madam Ambassador. Um, a question should be directed to all three. Panelists. Very well. Well, then I'll ask this. Um, do, will, would you, assuming the Palestinians were in favor of it, support a two-state solution where the Palestinians have some sovereignty over the Gaza Strip and the West Bank, assuming this is secular and there's some sort of disarmament agreement? Um, and if, you did, if, you, if the Palestinians were in favor of this, would you support it? And do you have a plan to try and bring something like that about in accordance with the 1967 borders? We are primarily here to talk about the Abraham Accords, but I will uh, ask the panelists for answers. Um, uh, Your Excellency, do you want to go first? 
we would love to see peace with our neighbors, the Palestinians. In order to achieve that, you need to have leadership that is willing to sit and negotiate with Israel. Unfortunately, in the last few years, the Palestinians refused to have a direct negotiation with any Israeli leader. So while people are asking us what will be the end game, we need to, to speak about the beginning of it. So you cannot have the end if you don't have the beginning. And the beginning cannot happen without starting a negotiation. Now, for, from our point of view, the biggest barrier to peace was the refusal to recognize Israel as a Jewish state. That was always the biggest barrier. And the way we see it, the way to move forward will start maybe, actually, I have a very good, good role models here from education for peace. Unfortunately, we don't get to see education for peace under the Palestinian Authority textbooks. And what the kids are learning is more pure anti-Semitism than, you know, the, the vision of having future peace with the Jews and with Israel. And I think this is the place to start and this is the place to begin. So many people are interested in the end game. Well, I'm saying at the moment, there is not that the Palestinian leadership is divided. And, you know, we have a Palestinian authority that doesn't even control terrorism hubs inside the Palestinian Authority um, areas. So we are in a serious problem that is not going to be fixed by, you know, putting slogans on the table. We need to have content of education, of building infrastructure with the young generation, not getting to the point where a 13-year-old boy is taking a gun and trying to kill people, innocent Jews, from, from uh, the other side. I think this is the place to begin. And I think when we will have that, we will have peace. Your Excellency, what is, uh, what is the, the UAE doing to try and persuade Palestine to come to the negotiating table, if anything? The UAE is uh, maintaining open lines of communication, you know, uh, um, with the Palestinians. I keep going back to this presidential statement, but um, uh, we'll do all we can. And I think the UAE has always had this ethos of having open communication to ensure um, you know that the space is there for, for them to to dialogue, but we continue to support them. Uh, you know by sort of piloting uh, stuff at the council uh, in terms of guarantees for financial aid. You know, so I think um, you know with time they'll recognise that we're a trusted broker. All right, let's another question for the audience, preferably about the Abraham Accords and to all three panelists. Uh, look to the member there with his hand high. Yeah, you. One is turning to right. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. I welcome all the uh, representatives, uh, it, uh, very generous of them to come to speak to us. Uh, since it was a point of negotiation uh, in the lead up to the accord, and you've already mentioned it, Mr. President, the, the issue of settlements in the West Bank, uh, we, we've spoken about the importance of the freeze on settlements. What about the already existing settlements? Are they not impediments to a free state solution, which I presume all free governments are still committed to? Thank you very much. Uh, Mr. Alam, do you want to go first on this? If I may add on this, or on, uh, just to get back on this, I don't think it was a, as mentioned, a thing that it was, it wasn't a prerequisite. 
it's something that's being negotiated and is being discussed as we go along. Um, uh, and such issues when it comes to domestic affairs take some time in order to resolve. So this is my intake on it. Uh, any comments from your excellencies? I think we have to recognize that the accords sort of emerged from a crisis, you know, and um, um, let's be very clear, you know, the, certainly the UAE supports a two-state solution on 967 lines with East Jerusalem as its capital, you know. How we get there and how we get there is, is not really for possibly the UAE and Bahrain to determine, it's really for Palestinian people and the Israelis to determine, you know, but we will just use all our efforts to kind of move that in the right direction. Um, you asked us two parts to that question for you. One, does Israel support a two-state solution? And second of all, does the requirement to freeze settlement building not actually help us get there? So let's start with the settlements because this is what the gentleman was asking about. In 2005, Israel make a de made a decision to withdraw from Gaza Strip. All the settlements were removed and people were hoping to see Gaza as the big experiment of peace. And what people were saying back then, when Israel did this very, very hard step, many people were against it because they said, wait a second, we don't know if it's from security aspect, it will be a good thing to do. So people said, look at Gaza. It's a beautiful uh, coastline and it will become Middle East Singapore. That was the assumption. And we hoped, we hoped to be wrong about that. But unfortunately, even though there was not even one settler or one settlement, left in the Gaza Strip. What happened in the end and the result was Hamas took control of the Gaza Strip and it just became another way to fight Israel in order to make sure Israel won't exist. And, and over, it has been under blockade. No, no, just, just to, no but this is, this is important to mention. Israel was withdrawing to the international borderline with Gaza and unfortunately it made terror extremer and unfortunately it creates miserable life to the Gaza people because of the leadership of Hamas. So this is the reality. And from my point of view and from Israel's point of view, settlements were never the issue. And when we uprooted all the settlements, it never brought peace. And we tried that in the past and it just didn't help. So we need to understand what are the problems in order to find the solutions. The Israeli government today support negotiation, supports peace, and it's open-minded to creative solutions because obviously the two-state solution has failed. And it's quite clear that today, none of the Palestinian leaders are supporting that in a way because even Mahmoud Abbas is not willing to sit and negotiate about a two-state solution. And it's quite clear it's time for us to be more creative. And, and I think this is why we need to take inspiration from those agreements, the Abraham Accords were a creative way to create strong connections in the region. If, if you're this saying we Israel need, we need to find a more creative solution, is that a fancy way of saying we should abandon the two-state solution? I think the two-state solution was abandoned by the Palestinians. They were the first people that said no every time that an Israeli government, together with American interfere, together with American mediators, were offering that. They, they, they said no in 2000, they said no in 2006. So this was refused by the Palestinians so time after no longer, time. Israel will no longer pursue a two-state solution? We believe that under the, the circumstances where 50% of the Palestinians being led by Hamas terror organization, this is not the way to go. You need to build a future 
leadership that is willing to start and think about the future of the children, both sides. And I think we're so far away from that before we take care of the educational issue. And I'm saying again, the Israeli government is for peace, always. We have time for two more questions. Again, preferably about the Abraham Accords, preferably to all three people. Go to the member here in the, uh, the daisy-covered top. Um, this is to all members, and it's about the Abraham Accords. Did your country push for the inclusion of Palestine in signing these accords? And if not, does that imply that your country does not believe that Palestine should be its own state or is its own state? Uh, we'll go, um, the question was, uh, did your country push for Palestine to be one of the signatories of the Abraham Accords? And if not, does that represent uh, your country's belief that Palestine is not or should not be a real state? Uh, Mr. Alam, do you want to go first? See, at the end of the day, whether a country wants to sign or not, that's a sovereign decision for it. Um, nobody is going to push anyone else to do whatever they want. If they see that it's necessary, then they will do it. This is one point. The second, whether they've signed or not, again, I reiterate, we support the two-state solution. We do recognize Palestine and we do recognize Israel. Um. I think there would be nothing, there's nothing in the Accords to my knowledge that would prevent Palestine from joining the Accords. I think they're so central and fundamental to the objective uh, of the Accords. Um, but, you know, we would have, uh, that would be our, our, our sort of objective, you know. I think they're so fundamentally built into the Accords that um, you can't not have Palestine within them. Uh, Your Excellency? Can you, can you repeat the specific question? Like, um, uh, does, did your country, did Israel push for Palestine to be included in the Abraham Accords? And would you want them to be included so, in the Abraham So I'm Accords? saying again, in, in the future, definitely we would like to see the Palestinians joining um, the peace circle. But the Abraham Accords was born because the Palestinians were refusing. So we thought that it will be a good thing to move and to keep on you know, achieving peace. So I would say... Even though we want them to be part of it, they refuse to be part of it. One more question. We'll go to the member who put his hand up first at the back there. Yeah, you. So, as you know, under international law, Israel does not have a right to the West Bank. UN 242 says that Israel must withdraw to June 67 borders. Not only has Israel not withdrawn, but according to human rights groups like Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, even Israeli groups like Beth Salem, Israel is carrying out apartheid in the occupied territories and violating the Fourth Geneva Convention by transferring its civilian population to the West Bank. My question is, why do you flout international law and why do you support apartheid? Um, so to rephrase that, I suppose, in the way that... Uh, to rephrase that in a way that, I suppose, applies to all panellists, uh, to Tsipi. Uh, um, uh, well, the question as it was worded, and to the two, do you feel comfortable uh, having normalised and diplomatic relations with a country that, uh, in the gentleman's words, uh, is in breach of international law, uh, the UN and the Geneva Convention? Uh, we'll go to Zippy first. Yeah. Israel is a democracy, and we're very proud of our democracy. And the UK is very proud of Israel's democracy, and this is why we have such a strong bilateral ties. All British prime ministers used to see Israel as a like-minded country when it comes to values. So... We definitely are very, very proud to be a democratic country. Human rights is something we 
appreciate so many human rights organizations are active in Israel because we are a democracy, because we open our doors for any kind of supervision, any kind of criticism, we're open to that. And I think uh, this is something we all should be proud of. Um, coming back to your question, um, just looking at Israel's um, infrastructure, 20% of Israeli population are Arabs. And just lately, they were the third largest party in the Israeli parliament. Um, either you need to learn what is apartheid, or you need, or you need to watch or you need to watch how Israeli democracy operates because 20% of our population are Arabs that are proud to be Arabs. And actually one of the representatives of this community that is a member of parliament was asked once, were you willing to live in Palestine if you afford uh, like to have a passport? And he said, I prefer to live in Israel because Israel is a democracy. And unfortunately the Palestinian Authority for the last 10 years didn't agree to have election. So we're talking about a regime that doesn't want to have free election. And in the Israeli side, we have probably too many elections. So that's the case. <laughs> uh, Mr. Alam, do you agree that Israel is in breach of international law uh, and the Geneva Convention? And, well, yeah. at the end of the day, this is a sovereign country. It has its sovereign decision and it's for them to decide whatever approach they take. We usually do not interfere in such issues and do not interfere in internal affairs of other countries. Do you then reject the authority of international law or the relevance of it? I did not say that. <laughs> <laughs> but if you said that uh, internal matters are for a, state, a sovereign state's own decision, even if they're in contravention of, uh, or alleged contravention of international law, surely that implies the same thing. Well, that would be for the state itself to take it with the UN bodies and discuss it with them together. Your Excellency? Very much agree with Hussein's uh, words that you know, this, this has to be addressed through the UN, um, but would remind uh, uh, the gentleman who asked the question that we support an independent Palestinian state in line with UN resolutions and international law. Um, I'm afraid we've come to the end of the talk. So the final question from me to uh, all of our representatives here is, what is the future for the Abraham Accords uh, and for uh, peace and prosperity in the Middle East? Uh, we'll start with Mr. Alam. Well, I see a great potential. I see a lot of development. I see more of the security, stability, coexistence, and achieving the utmost that wasn't achieved in the past tens of years. Uh, Your Excellency? Um, first of all, I agree with you. And um, just to say something from my personal experience, I, I feel like I'm part of a historic moment. And I really feel like we achieved so much in just two years. So just to think about what the future can bring if just in two years um, our very, very hard-working ambassadors together with the spirit of the leaders, they achieved so much. So I think it's going to be a top priority, I think, for all the leaders of our countries to keep on working together and keep on achieving together. And I think maybe the future will go to more corporations that will impact, you know, we're, we're part of our working group, we have um, a nice lobby in Parliament. And the idea is to bring the UK to be part maybe of the NEGA forum 
we would like to see a Western presence in promoting the Abraham Accords and thinking together about challenges we all have and how we can help each other. So actually I see a very, very big uh, impact also on this side of the world from the Abraham Accords. And to finish off the panel discussion, Your Excellency. Just to say, I think a very a promising future, you know, um, this is something that has happened within the region. It was facilitated through the US, but it's happened in the region. It's a vacuum that's been filled uh, by regional players now, you know, and I think one day we can hopefully move towards um, something that builds upon uh, Camp David, the Oslo Accords by possibly Abu Dhabi or Tel Aviv, you know, I think we have to think in that it's not going to be easy getting there. We need to build the trust. We need to build the Abraham Accords is just starting is what I'd say is in my final words. Give it a chance. Allow it to breathe. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for joining us and thank you for being such a... <laughs> thank you for being such an engaged, courteous and respectful audience.